to you. If you remember a couple weeks ago before we had our second Sunday singing last week, we were talked about that we might try and wrap up Daniel this week, but then I uh, read further on in Daniel 10 and said, nope, not going to be able to do that. Uh, so we're going to be just covering Daniel chapter 10 tonight. I think it'll be something uh, that hopefully will be interesting to you and maybe raise some questions for you. It has definitely raised some questions for me and probably uh, promoted at some point down the line. Not sure exactly when, if it'll be a class or if it'll be our uh, Sunday night series uh, coming forward another time. Probably a series on angels and demons because Daniel chapter 10 talks a good bit about it and that's certainly a topic that is interesting, uh, not one that I've ever taught before or done a tem- tremendous amount of study into, probably something that uh, we have not talked a whole lot about in our fellowship, uh, but something that I think may be interesting to all of us. So we may at some point, and I'm not promising you when or how soon it will be, uh, but we may do a series on angels and demons and what uh, the Bible tells us about those things. Again, in Daniel 10, it talks about them for sure, uh, and we won't draw any real solid conclusions on them tonight other than the fact that uh, angels and demons exist and we'll briefly discuss if and or when and how perhaps maybe probably just in passing tonight honestly uh, are they at work today we'll reference a number of scriptures so I hope that you along with Daniel 10 have your Bibles open and ready to turn to a number of scriptures especially towards the end of our lesson uh, that we'll look at and and consider so Daniel chapter 10 uh, we'll get right into it we'll probably walk through about the first 13 verses and then we'll pull back and we'll discuss some things uh, as, we, as we get to it, okay? So Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Uh, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the word and had an understanding of what had appeared. All right, so again, Daniel receives a vision. This is in the third year of King Cyrus. So this is the last king that Daniel is going to serve under. So it's towards the end of his life. He's probably uh, around his 80s or somewhere in his 80s at this point. I uh, don't know exactly how much longer he's going to live. Uh, 80s, maybe upper 80s, maybe even his 90s at this point, depending on when he uh, came to uh, Babylon, how old he was, probably as a teenager, been there about 70 years. So 80s and or 90s. Uh, The third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we know from biblical records and historical records, that's the year 536 uh, BC. Uh, That's important because in 536 BC, the the foundation is laid for the second temple in Jerusalem. All right, so you read about that in Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, those, those books, that time period. So it's the same time period. Uh, well, Dan- Daniel is still in Babylonian captivity, Persian captivity at this point, I suppose, serving the Persian king. Uh, and, and, but there are people that either that same year, maybe even before this, maybe later on after this, after he receives this vision, they're going to go back to Jerusalem and they'll begin to start rebuilding the temple. Later, they'll rebuild the wall rebuild the city and Jerusalem will be an inhabited Jewish place again with more power than it's had in a number of years. Uh, So this is uh, kind of the, the context of where we're at and notice this is also interesting he's had in the past, as we've studied, especially the last half of the book of Daniel, he's had dreams where he has been uh, asleep and, and dreaming like we dream, but still somehow able to interact with the dreams. He's had visions while he's been awake and been able to be more interactive with the, vi- with the visions. And in a lot of them, you probably notice, uh, and go, even go back to Daniel chapter 2, when the king had a, had a vision or a dream, uh, that there was a lots of confusion. But what does it say in verse 1 in Daniel chapter 10? He understands it. He knows what's going on. So unlike the other ones, he understands it, okay? And we're not told in Daniel 10 specifically what the vision is. I think that's what's going on in verse chapter 11 that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but 
interesting things happen in Daniel 10 before we even get to, okay, well, what is this vision that you have, this, this dream that you have uh, that you understand, okay? Uh, it's also one it's described as true, okay? It's definitely going to happen. He understands it. He grasps it, but it's one of great conflict, okay? Uh, perhaps that the vision itself depicts conflict. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 definitely depicts a good bit of contract, uh, conflict, uh, but also... I think it's conflict within Daniel, okay? We see in the next few verses his response to this vision uh, that he sees, and there's definitely some inner conflict within him as he's dealing with, okay, I understand what's going on here, and it bothers me. I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about it. Let's get to verse 2. In those days, so the days after he's received this, uh, this vision, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks, okay? Again, we're not necessarily told exactly, okay, well, why are you mourning but it seems to be in response to the vision that he's seen in verse 1, okay? He's really concerned about what's going on. He's mourning uh, for three weeks. He describes it uh, in verse 3. I did not eat any tasty food, nor meat, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks was fulfilled. So he's fasting from at least tasty meat. Uh, he's only drinking water, it seems. Uh, and it also talks about, and this is something we don't read about a whole lot, uh, but he's not using any ointment or anything like that. Certainly during that, uh, in that area, they would have used what we would consider today something like lotion uh, to keep their skin moisturized and that sort of thing. He's even withheld that from him in this mourning sense that he's in. Not quite sackcloth and ashes maybe, uh, but, but similar in his focus and his uh, repentance or his, uh, his idea towards uh, what, what he's seen, okay? Uh, so he's fasting for about three weeks. In verse 4, and on the 24th day of the first month, while I w- was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose loins were girded with a belt of pure fine gold of Euphaz. Okay, we'll talk more about that man here in just a second. Uh, Of note that's interesting, um, things that, it's a point that gives us a little bit of reason, perhaps, why is he fasting? Why is he mourning? Certainly, I think it's related to the vision that he's received that it talks about in verse 1. But it says on the uh, 24th day of the first month, that would be the month Nisan, uh, and the Jewish calendar be around about our April. Uh, Passover is always the 15th through the 22nd of Nisan. He says on the 24th day of Nisan, so he's just finished up Passover, so that means that he was mourning in the midst of Passover. He was fasting in the midst of Passover, okay? Why would he be mourning the Passover in Babylon, Media, Media Persia? Well, what's the Passover? Remember, the Passover is the celebration of being delivered from captivity in Egypt, and now he finds himself in captivity in a foreign land. Uh, it would be the, the time when they came out of Egypt as slaves and eventually they made it to the promised land and built the temple in Jerusalem and had a nation and had a people. And now, years later, the people have lost all of that. Perhaps that's another reason that he's mourning. So in the midst of this three-week period of fasting, uh, he celebrates, recognizes uh, in whatever way he can in a foreign land, Passover during this time. So that may give a little more of a, a light as to why he's mourning and the situation that he's going through, okay? Uh, in verse 5 through about verse 5 and 6, really, uh, he describes a certain man, he says. Notice the description. He's dressed in linen whose loins are girded with a belt of pure fine gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl. His face uh, had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were a flame of like flaming torches. His arms and feet like, gleam, like the gleam of uh, burnished bronze and the sound of his words like those, like the sound of a multitude, okay? Some sort of being 
a certain man is how it's described. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, this sounds very similar to John's uh, description of who we come to know as Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Okay, so there's a hint about potentially at least who this man is. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But anyway, he, he's uh, by the river and beyond the bank. Uh, he sees this man, verse number 7. Uh, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision that appeared, but the men who were with me did not see the vision that appeared. Nevertheless, a great terror fell on them, and they ran away and hid themselves. Does that remind you of anything that happens in the New Testament? That he's the only one who sees the vision. Remember Saul on the road to Damascus? He has people who are there with him. And in different versions, uh, different accounts, Paul saying, uh, Saul recounting his story, uh, one of them says that, uh, you know, he struck blind and, and he hears, but nobody else heard the message from Jesus. And then another account, it says that they heard, but they did not understand. Okay, so similar here, Daniel is with some other people by the river, uh, and this man shows up, and there's this vision that we'll talk more about next week in chapter 11, uh, but nobody else saw it, uh, but they are terrified, and they they run away. For Saul, uh, he hears the voice, he's struck blind, and he hears the voice of Jesus, but no one else hears and or understands uh, what's going on here. So again, and, and who's Saul interacting with? Jesus. Who's John interacting with in Revelation chapter 1? Jesus. There's some Potential context clues here for who this man potentially is, this certain man described uh, starting in verse 5, okay? Uh, Verse number 8, so I alone remained and saw the great vision that appeared, yet no no might remained in me, for my outward splendor turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no might. So he's, uh, he's terribly frightened. Uh, it seems like he, he turns white. You know, he, he's, uh, his outward splendor turned to deathly pallor. Uh, he turns extremely white, uh, like someone does when they, maybe like when they, we think they see a ghost or something like that, how afraid they are. He's, he's afraid of, of what's going on here, and he says he has no strength. And number, verse number nine, uh, but I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell in to a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Again, there is, this is Daniel, certainly, Revelation certainly is uh, apocalyptic literature. It's uh, literature that's talking about uh, end times, end of the world, prophecy for certain. Uh, and there's, there's too many connections between just these verses that we've read and Revelation chapter 1 to ignore them. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, when John interacts with who we know, come to know as Jesus, uh, he has the exact same response. He falls on his face and he falls asleep. He, 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 he is dumbstruck the very same way that Daniel is dumbstruck by this certain man uh, who is here. So there's, there's lots of connections, okay? And we'll talk more in detail about this in a minute. But this is, this is what's going on. Uh, Daniel's in his 80s. He's out by the river. And all of a sudden, there's this certain man that shows up who just, you know, he's not like anything else he's ever seen before, okay? He's totally different. Remember, he's already seen at least one angel in person, Okay, we'll talk more about that shortly. Uh, but he's, he's dumbstruck, he's, he's in awe, uh, and, and he, uh, he says he falls into a deep sleep on his face. Number nine, verse number 10, excuse me. Uh, then behold, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. And he said to me, this certain man, O Daniel, man of high esteem, Daniel has been referred to that a num- number of times by different uh, heavenly beings, understand the words that I am about to speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Okay, so he falls down and he's overwhelmed, he's touched, and, and the, the being says, stand up, and he finds the strength to stand up. 
Verse number 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you gave your heart to understand this and to humble yourselves before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. Now, if you remember from Daniel chapter 9, that sounds again similar uh, to what uh, the angel Gabriel says to him, uh, that you called for me and that I was sent to you because you, you, as soon as you started saying this prayer, I was sent. And this being says the same thing. As soon as you set your heart to know these things and to understand these things, uh, I, was, I was sent to you, okay? Probably in reference, and I think as we go on and we read some more details here, it'll, it'll build this case. But when he's talking here, you know, from, from the first day that you gave your heart to understand this, understand what? The vision that you've been given more than likely, and to humble yourself before God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. What I think that's referring to, and again, as we read further, I think it'll, it'll prove out to be this way. Three weeks ago, when he started his fast and asked God to help him understand this, this being was sent. As soon as he humbled himself and wanted to understand this, uh, God said, go. Okay? That's the exact same thing that happens with Gabriel in chapter 9. Okay? That he's, he's sent to help him understand the vision that, that's happening there. Okay? Uh, verse number 13, and here's where it gets a little more interesting, perhaps. Okay? Okay, so let's, let's read verse 12 again just to remind ourselves. Then he said to me, this being, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you gave your heart to understand this and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. I've come to answer the questions that you've got, Daniel. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for 21 days. How many weeks is three weeks? How many days are in three weeks? 21 days. There's a connection there. Uh, then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me. Uh, came to help me. Now I had been left there with the kings of Persia. All right, there's some questions there that I've got. All right, so this being says uh, that I was, I was, you know, as soon as you started praying, I would assume three weeks ago, 21 days ago, I was sent, I was supposed to come to you, but I couldn't come to you because uh, the prince of the kingdom, uh, what does it say? The prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now I have been, I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Okay, so we need to, to ask ourselves some questions before we really go on and, and figure out some of the rest of this chapter. Uh, here's the questions that I have. Who's this man and who are these princes, Right? That's what we want to know. Who's this man and who are these princes? And here's uh, what I think we can gather from, from this passage and from some other passages. And, and, and we'll get to them in a few minutes, but have your Bibles ready as we turn around and look at these things, okay? Um, it's possible that this man, this being, is, is just another angel like Gabriel or Michael. That's possible. Uh, some believe, and there's some evidence, and we've already, I've already alluded to some of this, that this it would be a pre-incarnate Christ, Okay, Jesus, before he took on flesh, incarnate, took on flesh, so a pre-incarnate flesh. Uh, that's a, that's a, a possibility, and again, we've already mentioned some of the reasons why that might be. Uh, Daniel's description of him is very similar to the description that John gives the being that he interacts with in Revelation, who we know because Revelation tells us that that is Jesus. We, we know that's Jesus, and these, sim- these uh, descriptions are similar. They're not exactly the same, but they are similar. Uh, along those lines also... Um, some of the things that happen with uh, Daniel's interaction with this being are similar to Daniel's interactions with Gabriel, okay, the angel Gabriel, okay? Uh, so it's possible that that would lend some credence to the idea of, well, this is just a, another angel, uh, and that's, that's a possibility, and the, the ultimate fact is we're really not, we can't be positive, I don't think, about this for sure. Uh, my personal opinion would be that it is probably pre-incarnate Christ, um, but I don't know that it makes a difference per se, 
okay? Uh, but let's, let's think about some more. Um, some people even think that this is just Gabriel again, okay? The, the problem with that is, is that the first time that Gabriel shows up, Daniel learns that the being's name is Gabriel. The second time that he shows up, he names him Gabriel. So if he showed up a third time, why would he not just name him again? Hey, Gabriel showed up to me again. Okay, so the first time that Gabriel shows up, new meeting, just met the person, met the being, uh, learns his name is Gabriel. The second time that he shows up in his description of it in the book of Daniel, he says, Gabriel appeared to me a second time. Okay, so he knew that it was Gabriel. So if this was Gabriel again, why did he not just say Gabriel appeared to me a third time? So it would seem to me that it's probably not Gabriel because it would seem from his practice that he would have named him Gabriel if it were indeed Gabriel. All right, um, and that's the second visit in chapter 9, verse 21, uh, for, for your information there. Uh, again, the similarities between uh, Daniel's vision here and John's vision here, not just the similarities of the, the man they're interacting with or the being they're interacting with, but also the, the visions themselves about what they're talking about. Are kind of, again, they're, they're apocalyptic uh, in, in nature, maybe even similar uh, ideas there. Uh, so so that, those are some reasons, and we're not going to go into a lot, again, this has spiked my interest in the study of angels and demons, so we may go that route at some point later, but we're not, we don't have time to do that now. Now, here, here's maybe the biggest uh, argument against this being pre-incarnate Christ. If this is Christ, who is what? He's God. Why would he need Michael to come and help him? Right? If there's these princes of Persia uh, that are standing against him, why would Jesus... Christ need any help if he's God. And that maybe is uh, an, an argument against this being pre-incarnate Christ. But clearly, there's some angelic, heavenly, spiritual being that shows up to talk to Daniel, uh, and, and we hear some other things. So that's just about the man. Well, but what about these princes? Okay, here in, in chapter 10, it talks about the prince of Persia, uh, the princes of Persia. In chapter 11, it's also going to talk about, or maybe even the end of chapter, yes, in verse 20 of chapter 10, it talks about the prince of Greece. Okay, well, who, who are these people? Are these just regular old people here, or is this something different? Uh, I would suggest to you that I believe that it's not a, a man, a, a person, uh, that it is, again, a, a heavenly being. Uh, and, and the question would be, well, well, what kind of being is this? Who, who might this be? Okay, so the princes of, of Persia and Greece that are mentioned in chapter 10. Uh, also notice that Michael is mentioned, and he's called a prince as well. Uh, in verse 13, look down at verse 13. It says, uh, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for, the, for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now I had and left there with the kings of Persia. Okay, so you have this, this enemy against this man who Daniel is talking to Daniel that are described as a prince. And then you have Michael who comes and helps the man who's called a chief of the princes. All right? Uh, so we know who Michael is, right? We know from Scripture who Michael is. Okay, well, here's, here's some of the things that we, we know about Michael from Scripture. Again, he's called a prince uh, in verse 13. He's also called a, a prince in verse 21. In chapter 12 in verse 1, all, all of those three times in the book of Daniel, he's described as a prince. In Revelation uh, chapter 12 and verse 7, again, there's connections between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. If you want to understand Revelation, understand the Old Testament, and it'll be a lot easier for you and for me. Uh, okay, but in Revelation chapter uh, 12 and verse 7, Michael specifically is named, and he's described as... As leading a group of angels, okay? So he's not just any angel, he's leading a group of angels, okay? Uh, also in Jude chapter 1 and verse 9, uh, he's talked about, he's specifically named an archangel. So again, there's, there's a distinction between he's not just any angel, he's an archangel, okay? My, my conclusion would be this, um, when we th- especially when we think about archangel, well, that would be the, the New Testament version of what he's called here in verse uh, number 13, where he's the, the chief of 
princes. He's one of the chief princes. Okay, he's an archangel. He's one of the chief princes. He's leading other angels. Okay, so we know Michael, who's called a prince, three times in the book of Daniel is what? He's an angel. Okay, but then we also have enemy princes. Okay, well, what do we know about angels? There are many of them who serve and follow God, but there are also some of them who have fallen, right? Uh, we, we know that from uh, passages um, like, uh, I have it here, Second Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, and also Jude verse 6, where it talks about fallen angels and how they're going to be punished. So uh, my, my conclusion would be that these, and this is something that, again, I haven't heard a whole lot of Bible classes about this, haven't had great detailed conversations about this, uh, but Michael here is called a chief prince. He's called an archangel. He's leading angels. We know that angels exist. Um, and then we also know that there are fallen angels. Uh, we, we know and, and may refer to those. And, and again, here's a question for us to maybe study at another time. Are these fallen angels the same things that are described as demons in the, Old, in the New Testament? And maybe in the Old Testament, are they the same thing? Are they different? Are they related? What's the situation there? But let's, let's look at a few different passages here and, and try to understand this. And this may be, again, this sparked my interest into the study of Daniel chapter 10. Uh, and I don't know if there's a practical point here, but there is a practical point here. So stick with me, okay? Let's look at, uh, I think, four passages relatively quickly, okay? Turn, turn with me to these, okay? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. You'll be familiar with some of these, uh, maybe all of them, uh, but let's just think about it. When we're thinking about uh, angels and demons, which I think at least angels and fallen angels is what Daniel chapter 10 is talking about when it's talking about Michael and then talking about Gabriel in chapter 9 being an angel uh, and then these, uh, these princes uh, of Persia and princes of Greece in chapter 10. Uh, I think he's talking about at least fallen angels, perhaps even what we would call uh, demons. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, talking about angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so again, talking about angels, he describes them as ministering spirits. Okay, so what, what do angels do? Have you ever wondered about that? What do angels do? Well, one thing that we're described here that angels are ministering spirits, and what are they ministering to? To render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Okay, what does that mean? That means the angels work is to work on the side of those of us who will inherit salvation. What work is that? Again, that's a, a topic for uh, the deeper study. Okay, But angels serve to render service to those of us who are seeking and will inherit salvation. What does that look like? Deeper study for another time. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. 1 Corinthians 10.20, this is probably one of those almost throwaway verses that you may have read before, but if you're not thinking angels and demons, if you're not thinking angels and fallen angels, you're probably not even thinking about this, okay? You probably just read over it and, and move on, okay? Uh, talking about uh, sacrifices and that sort of thing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, no, but I say that, they, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, okay, so think about Gentiles sacrificing, think about the Roman gods, think about the Greek gods, think about the Egyptian gods, the, the things that they sacrifice, okay, it says the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons, Okay, so what that's saying here is that when the Gentiles are offering sacrifices, listen, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and and I've got to do more study on it. I'll be clear with you. But have you ever thought of idols as just being pieces of wood and pieces of stone? That's really all they are in some ways. But what he's saying here is these Gentiles, they're offering sacrifices to something, 
that has some sort of power, these demons, these fallen angels, they may not realize they're fallen angels. They may not recognize them as demons. They recognize them as some sort of spiritual power and maybe some sort of spiritual power that has given them benefit and that's why they're choosing to worship it through sacrifice. But he's saying these sacrifices that the, the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians and throughout history, many different people have offered to whatever they're offering it to. They're offering them not to just the empty space out there, but in fact, perhaps to, and I would say to, real beings demons fallen angels something along those lines now you may notice uh, in verse uh, 20 of uh, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, that the the words sacrifice to demons and not to God may be either uh, you know all highlighted or italicized or somehow marked different differentiated from the rest of the chapter that's because it's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, and verse 17 Deuteronomy 32 17 I want to read that to you because uh, it gives you a little bit more uh, information there this is the song of Moses uh, towards probably the, the end of his life remember Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law that he's giving towards the end of his life. Deuteronomy 2, 7, 32, 17 says they sacrifice, again, talking about other people, okay? Uh, they sacrifice to demons who were not God, to gods, lowercase g, whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Again, so Old Testament and New Testament, these sacrifices, these pagan sacrifices, sometimes in my mind, I've always thought them was, well, they're just, they're just burning these animals to nothing. Well, Paul and Moses say they're not sacrificing them to nothing. They're sacrificing them to demons. Real beings, real spiritual beings. And that was something that was really going on. There was a, a true connection there. Okay, turn over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, let's read verses 19 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. 1 John 5, 19, 21, uh, the very end of the, the book here, it says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know, we sing that song sometimes, uh, this is my father's world. That's a nice song. I don't know that it's biblically accurate, though. Right? What does that verse just tell us? We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Sounds like this is not my father's world. It sounds like this is Satan's world. We read earlier this morning about escaping the corruption of the world by lust, right? This world is a fallen world. This world is not what God wants it to be. That's why we're looking for something better in the future. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are him and, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then notice this connection that he makes. Little children, guard yourself from idols. So that ties into what we're talking about here. Guard yourself from idols. This whole world lies in the power of the evil one, lies in the power of Satan, the fallen angel who had other angels who fell with him. So we've talked about Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Angels are ministering spirits, ministering to those who will inherit salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20 and Deuteronomy as well say that when they offer sacrifices, when pagan sacrifices are offered, they're not just offering them to empty space, they're offering them to true, real beings, okay? That in some form or fashion, they have interacted with in some form or fashion not saying i understand it again i've got to do a whole lot more study on it but those sacrifices the bible says paul says moses says they offered sacrifices to little g gods 
beings that they had made God that had some sort of power. First Corinthians or First John chapter five verse nineteen through twenty one uh, again tells us to guard ourselves from idols because this world belongs to the evil one. And then Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six and verse twelve, a passage that you're uh, familiar with because it's right before uh, the armor of God. But let's remember what it says, Ephesians chapter six and verse twelve. It says, we start in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Is the devil scheming against you? You better believe it. You better act like it. You better recognize it. You better know that it is. And then notice what it says in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Again, talking about spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Spiritual beings that are at odds with you, that are at odds with God, and since you're on God's side, you've named yourself to be a Christian, there are these spiritual forces that are at odds with you. And that's why you need the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, in my study, what I was, what I was looking at here, again, in, back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, we have the, the princes, or what I would put two and two together from, from the brief thing that we've done here and more, more study to do, that the prince of, of uh, Persia and the princes of Greece that's going to be talked about later on, uh, these are fallen angels, demons perhaps, that are at work in those areas of the world, influencing the people of those areas of the world, and God, Jesus, perhaps Jesus, at least this, this man, this spiritual, heavenly, on God's side being, had come and was, was opposed, trying to uh, help the princes of, of Persia, the kings of Persia, uh, but this other being, the prince of Persia, as he's described, the, this evil angel, at the very least, demon perhaps we would call him, uh, they, they were at odds for 21 days. Okay, big picture, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, there is something going on that we don't see. There's something going on that I can't put my eyes on. Okay, now, we don't talk about it a lot. Again, I've never been in a class about that. I don't hear a whole lot of lessons on it, that sort of thing, and probably that's because we don't understand it fully. And I don't know that we can understand it fully, but I, but I think the, the, the point for us to recognize is as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Our struggle is not against people who practice homosexuality. Our struggle is not against people who commit murder. Our struggle is not against people who commit evil in this world. Our struggle is against all of the forces that are somehow influencing them to do those things. Now, saying the devil made me do it is not what I'm saying here, okay? I get that. You're still responsible for your actions. But the devil, does the devil want you to do evil things? Absolutely. Is the devil a powerful being? Absolutely. Is he going to do everything that he can to, to make you walk in the darkness and, and practice unrighteousness? You better believe it. And whatever minions or fellow fallen angels that he has, they're working for the same thing. And we need to, to be aware of that. And then again, that's why Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against those things. So we're told what the answer is through the armor of God and other things though we may not always understand exactly what the battles look like or, or how they come. So that was interesting to me. Uh, and and some, some deep stuff here uh, that I think we'd have to really look at further, and again, we may in the future. Uh, but Daniel was talking about that kind of battle. That's what he's describing. That's what this being who comes to him, whether it's pre-incarnate Christ or another angel or whatever it is, this 
for lack of a better phrase, good guy angel has had some bad guy angels that he's fighting against, and that prohibited him to come for 21 days, okay, for three weeks, the, th- the entire time that, that Daniel was fasting, okay? So that seems to be what's going on here. Uh, let's keep going in verse uh, number 14. Uh, now I have come to give you an understanding, okay? So here's, he's going back, he, he's told them about what was happening in, in Persia, home, what was happening with the, uh, the evil angels, uh, and now he gets to verse 14, talking back to Daniel about why he's coming. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future, okay? So what we're going to talk about next week, Lord willing, in chapter 11, uh, the angel says, this being says, I've come to explain that to you to help you understand what this means. Now, remember, Daniel's already got some understanding. Verse 1 tells us that, uh, but he's, he's, he's going to give him some more details, perhaps, okay? That seems to be what happens in, in verse 11, or chapter 11, and that's definitely what we get out of chapter 11. Uh, but I've come to, to give you these things, and it says what will happen to your people in the last days. That phrase, those two words, last days, are important. Those are words that are repeated a lot in the Old Testament and a lot in the New Testament. Here are just three passages that are really important. Daniel chapter 2 the idea of the last days is presented there. You remember what we talked about a long time ago now, Daniel chapter 2, that, that, that statue that shows up? Remember that uh, Babylon is the head of gold, and then you've got uh, silver and bronze and clay mixed with steel and all that kind of stuff. Remember there's this big rock cut out of uh, nothing that comes and crushes the whole thing? Well, that's described as happening in the last days. In Joel chapter 2, it says, In the last days your sons and daughters will prophesy and do all these types of things. And then Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 2. All right, last days... Daniel 2, Joel 2, Acts 2, all right? Kind of easy to remember because they all happen in chapter 2, all right? So uh, Daniel 2, something greater is coming. Joel 2, in the last days, something's going to be different. Uh, And then Peter describes what's happening in Acts 2 as this is what Joel said would happen in the last days. And again, what happens in Acts chapter 2? The church is established, okay? So what's that stone in Daniel chapter 2? the church that you and I get to be a part of, okay? There's connection here. Last days does not necessarily mean the last days of the end of the earth when Jesus will return and creation will be destroyed with fire. Uh, Last days doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, We today, you today, and for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days according to uh, at least the establishment of the church uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, So that's important for us to remember, okay? Uh, Verse number 16. Uh, let's go to 15, sorry. Uh, now, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. Again, he is overwhelmed by what uh, this being is saying to him. And behold, one in the likeness of the sons of men was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision that appeared, pains have come upon me and I have restrained, I have uh retained no strength now how can such a servant of my lord talk with such as my lord as for me right now no might stands within me nor does any breath remain in me so he's talking to this being and saying i am just completely overwhelmed what right do i have to talk with you you are my again this is the difference between his response to gabriel who he was impressed by and he even falls on the ground to gabriel but there's something more something more about this being He responds in a a greater extent, which again would lead me to believe this being is something more than just an angel, okay? You and I would be 
just like they are, utterly amazed by just an angel, but there seems to be something more here, okay? Uh, He talks about uh, touching his lips. That reminds us of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when Isaiah is called up into the throne room of God, and he says, I can't speak because I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember, the angel comes and touches his lips with the the coal, and he's made clean, and then he's able to speak. So, man, there's just just so many connections. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9, it says that the Lord, and they're specifically talking about not just an angelic being, but the term Yahweh, God Almighty is used, and it says, Yahweh, God, touched my lips, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9. So again, another parallel, this being here in Daniel 10, touches lips. Uh, Jeremiah says, God himself touches the lips because of the unclean spirit. In verse 17, again, the, the situation there of, I, I don't have a right to talk to you. Again, that's Isaiah and Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. So lots of, lots of parallels, lots of uh, responses to how he's interacting uh, with this being that he has here. Um, Verse number 18, then this one uh, with the appearance of the man touched me again and strengthened me. He says, I've got no strength. This being touches him again, he gets strength. And he said to me, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Gather strength and be strong. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Okay, so... This is just, there's just a lot here. And from the next chapter, he's going to talk to him for seemingly a long amount of time. But this being seems to be saying to Daniel, hey, do you know why I came here? I need to tell you some things, but I've got to hurry because I've got to get back and fight against these other princes, these other spiritual beings. So we've got to get going here, Daniel. I know you've fallen on your face two or three times now. I need you to man up a little bit here, Daniel, because I've got work to do. It seems to be my... What, what I would think he's saying. Uh, you know, man up a little bit. We've got some things to, to talk about here. And then verse 21, however... Talking about what's going to happen in chapter 11. I will tell you what is inscribed in the writings of truth. Now, there is no one who exerts strength with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And again, there's Michael, the archangel, described as a prince. Uh, here's, the, here's what we want to take from tonight, from verse 21. Uh, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writings of truth. Um, it seems to be, as we, as we have a healthy reverence for scripture and and we claim that this is the inspired god-breathed word of god that what he is saying here what this this being is saying to daniel is hey i'm going to tell you what's written down and and almost that just that closes the deal what i'm going to tell you you can take it to the bank because god has shown you i'm going to explain to you these things will happen there's no doubt about it In my study, someone even uh, suggested that the reason that the prince of Persia fought against this being who came was because he knew, Satan would know, and these fallen angels would know, that if this being came and explained this to Daniel and declared to him that the inscribed, the things that are inscribed in the writings of truth, that if that happened, then, then whatever was prophesied was unavoidable because it had been written down in the word of truth. When we think about apocalyptic literature, we think about books like the second half, especially the book of Daniel. We think about uh, the book of Revelation. When we think about prophecy in general, uh, it can be really confusing, can it? Uh, Chapter 11 next week, uh, when I read it without historical context, I'm just confused. With historical context, we can appreciate it and we'll look at that a lot next week, okay? Okay. But what, what we can consider here, when we think about prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, even the prophecy of the New Testament, apocalyptic literature, uh, literature about the end of time, or 
scripture about the end of time or the last days or whatever it is and whatever terminology you want to look at it, some, a lot of people, and maybe even some of us, get caught up in predicting the future or using prophecy or apocalyptic literature to predict the future. And that's why, again, like we talked about a few weeks ago, so many people have tried to determine uh, the, the date of Christ's return based on these things here and these things here and trying to put all of these pieces together. But I don't think that's the point of prophecy. I don't think that's the point of even apocalyptic literature. The point is, God is saying, hey, I know what's going to happen. And the being here says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writings of truth. These things will happen. I'm declaring them to you. You can't change it. This is going to happen. Whether it's positive, as it is sometimes in the Old Testament, or whether it's negative, prophecy against Israel in the Old Testament, or whether it's in the New Testament, positive or negative, whether it's good news or bad news, it's going to happen because God has declared it to us. And it's not so much, okay, well, let me figure out when this or that is going to happen. The point of this literature, the point of prophecy, is for us to realize, hey, God knows these things. He's in control. I need to be on his side. And if that's not what the book of Daniel has been about from Daniel chapter 1, I don't know what is. You remember we talked about in Daniel chapter 1 where they come uh, as exiles. In Daniel chapter 2, the king has the dream and their life's on the line. In Daniel chapter 3, they stand before the statue and they have to bow down to it or they're thrown in the furnace. In Daniel chapter 4 and 5, when they have these other interactions, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. All of these things, and every single time for those first six chapters, when God's people are in trouble, it seems like God has no control. But by the end of every story, what happens? God is in control. The point of prophecy, whether it's just proclaiming God's word to us or somehow God trying to somehow explain to us what may happen in the future. The point of it is, who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in the world? Are you going to trust in those little G gods that might have some power, but they don't have the power? Or are you going to trust in God? Again, Daniel 10 uh, like I said, I wanted to do Daniel 10, 11, 12 to wrap it up to this, this week. But it's, there's just too much there for us not to talk about it. And I don't know the answers, and you may know a lot more about this than I do, uh, but we're going to study it at some point, Lord, Lord willing, down the road. Uh, but I think that the point will be from what little we know now or what more we know later, trust God. And whatever you're facing and whatever happens, because if God has said it, guess what? It's going to happen. You can't change that. If it's good news, it's going to happen. If it's bad news, it's going to happen. The only choice we have is how we respond to whatever happens. We need to put our faith and trust in God. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, the writer tells us that in times past, God had overlooked ignorance, but now is declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day. He has proclaimed there will be a day when we will be judged, you can't change that. One day, you and I will stand before the judgment seat. The option we have is, how do we respond to that news? And you have that opportunity to respond to that every day of your life. He says, repent, for that time is coming. 
this evening, if you've got something going on in your life that you need to repent of, I hope that even in this moment while I'm still talking, you'll bow your head and close your eyes or keep your eyes open and pray to God and say, God, I recognize my sinful state. I recognize I'm not living the way that I need to live. I ask you to forgive me of that sin and to help me to do better. And if you're brave enough, if you're brave enough to tell somebody about it so that we can pray for you, Scripture tells us to do that too. You don't have to come forward. But get somebody that you love and that you care about and that you respect as a follower of Christ and let them know your struggles so that we can pray for you. The fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. God tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we might be healed. Uh, Let's take that seriously. At some point down the road, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We're relying fully upon the grace of God, absolutely, but God also has the expectation that we'll do our best to do our best, like we talked about this morning. If you have any needs, if you want to come forward and let us know, we want to pray for you. Uh, If you've got something wrong in your life, fix it. Uh, Make it better. Rely on God. And if we can help you in any way with that, uh, we would love to. If there's anything we can do, please come as we stand and sing.